Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Planting Green with No-Till and Cover Crops, a year-round ecological system, is brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Montag Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto-steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Trey Hill of Harborview Farms in Rockhall, Maryland, grew up farming conventionally, but the operation switched to no-till with cover crops many years ago as part of a state effort to mitigate agricultural effects on the Chesapeake Bay. One particularly wet spring, they were forced to plant green into growing cover crops, and the experience changed Trey's perspective on farming. In this episode, we'll hear from Trey as he addresses an audience of producers at the 2019 National No-Tillage Conference, sharing his thoughts on the ecology of farming and talking about what he's doing with cover crops, how he incorporated planting green into his operation, yield results they've been seeing, and more. Now from Harborview Farms, here's Trey Hill. It's uh, quite an honor to be here. Um, I've learned uh, everything that we do from probably everyone in this room as well as the magazine, so I'm very humbled. Anyway, I was going to start with a little story on how we kind of got where we are how we learned to plant green, um, how we started with the cover crops. And then also I was gonna kind of go into uh, some of the, the different ways that we plant green, then talk about some of the collaborations that we have or that might be a little bit unique, that are somewhat a little bit different. From there, I was gonna kind of talk about some of the equipment that we're using to do it. It closed with uh, yields and some yield maps and some stuff that we've done in the last couple of years. Um, I wanted to define ecological. Um, we call it ecological farming. I thought that was kind of better than sustainable better than responsible because it's, the definition of ecological is how organisms relate to one another. And I thought that that really describes what we do as growers, um, particularly in a no-till environment, is we're always trying to figure out how all these different organisms within the soil, the seed, and everything else are relating to one another, um, kind of taking it to the next level. But I don't think that we could have done that before because everyone asks, why didn't you do this before? Why is this all of a sudden? Well, we have a lot of technology now that we never had before. So the way we've gotten this, I, c- I come from a very conventional background. My father is a very conventional, successful farmer. Um, I grew up with him. I was uh, studied at Purdue. And I wanted to start with a little story about kind of where we ended up here. Um, I'm going to say it all started with George. George helped raise me. Um, he's been with the farm for probably 40 years. Taught me to plant corn. Um, I think arguably he may have planted more corn than anyone in the world. No one's questioned that, but I think it's probably pretty close. Um, George, if you don't know George, I'm sure everyone knows a George. He's, a, he's kind of a gruff guy, uh, awesome operator, uh, really uh, tedious, meticulous in everything that he does. So we had a year, I think it was about 12 or 15 years ago, and at the time it didn't seem like a very big deal. Um, we had a real wet spring. Uh, typically we planted cover crops. We've got a cover crop program in our state, so we've been cover cropping for 20 years. We get paid to cover crop. Um, it's a profitable endeavor. Um, it's a great state program that we have. I feel very fortunate for that. Um, but we would always go out in March and race to kill the cover crops as fast as we could because we were always scared what happens if they stay alive and we have to plant it. 
you know, we won a no-till. We were still doing some conventional tillage, but we, there were all these what-ifs, and everyone said that it couldn't be done. So we were one of the ones that said it couldn't be done. Well, we had a field that we had sprayed, and we had done the headlands. You know, we had done a 90-foot buffer, got rained out, or we quit that night, and the rest of the field stayed green. We started planting, we never got back. We kept wanting to get back, but it was wet, and we were pushing. You know, the sprayers were chasing the planters, couldn't get it done. So we were getting into May. Uh, it was a weak cover. Um, it had, we'd had stem elongation. It hadn't headed out yet, but it was up way beyond our comfort levels. And uh, the problem was it was right on the road next to the co-op and next to the granary. <laughs> it was a rough situation. I mean, it looked awful. You know, we had this, this field with a brown strip around it. The rest of it is bright green and just as thick. I mean, it looked like a field of wheat that we had killed half of. People were like, well, did you kill half your wheat field? Did you kill the headlands? What'd you do? I'm like, no, we were going to kill the cover crop, and it didn't work out. So I look at George. I'm like, George, let's go try and plant it. And he kind of looks at me, and he has this look where he looks at you like you're stupid. And it's really effective because everyone that we hire goes, George just looked at me like I'm stupid. And he gives it to me too, which is good. It's a truth tester. I said, well, let's just try it, George. You know, what, what do we got to lose? If we spray it and kill it, you know, then the stuff gets real stemmy. Um, if you kill cover crop while standing and trying to plant into it and it's wet, you end up pulling the root balls up with your road cleaners. We've done that. We knew that. We didn't want that mess. We didn't want to work the ground. We didn't want to plow it because we had all these great roots from the cover crop that we would then have to wait for them to die so that we could get it finished off with the field cultivators in order for it to break up to make it plantable the way that we would do it properly. So George goes up there, I'm on another planter, and uh, he's up there for a couple hours, and he calls me, and he's like, Trey, you gotta come here and look at this. And I'm like, oh, no. You know, no one calls you for something good, right? It's always to, how many of you get called to untangle row cleaners, to, you know, fix messes, wrench on stuff, that's, what, that's my cause, right? And that's why I call George. I don't call George for good stuff, so we have a mutual understanding that you don't call if things are going well. And we go up there and we look at it, and he goes, Trey, where I planted in these headlands, he said, it's just way too wet. He says, absolutely muddy. And we look at it, you know, the, the, we've all seen it, or guys that are like me have all seen it. The trench is open, you can see the seeds, it's muddy, it's wet, it's clearly not fit to plant. You know, we're at least four or five days out. It had wheat stubble on it from the year, last year, uh, so it's got a nice thick mat on it. And we're like, what are we going to do? He said, but wait, Trey, look at this. And we walk over, and this is a guy that didn't want to be doing this. I didn't want to be doing it. And as soon as you got into where it was green, the soil was fit. It was almost a conventional environment. Um, within four or five inches, the soil had gone from mud, trenches open, seeing the seed, clearly not fit, sidewall compaction, you name it, it was a horrible situation. It would have been awful if we planted. We could, probably would have planted it anyway just to get it done because it was a mess and we wanted to spray it. But where we got into the green area, it was fit. So I'm not going to say that that changed the way we farmed. Like I said, it's been, it probably took us 10 years before we even got to a, a significant percentage of, of ground being planted green before we had that nerve, particularly the later planted stuff. Um, but what it did is it changed the way we viewed the way we farmed. You know, I was programmed to think that this was an improper way of farming for probably 30 years. I was in my young 30s, so I knew everything, right? You know, I'm in my 40s now, so I've started to realize I don't know that much. Um, my kids are quick to point that out. And, so in my 30s, I went, wow, wait a second. And George, you know, George was uh, probably 60. You know, he had been planting all his life. And he and I were both kind of like, this doesn't make sense. We've got to figure this out because that means we'd always done conventional tillage because we wanted to plant early, right? We dried the fields out. We created compaction zones so that we could dry fields out so we could plant to compact the ground to grow less and burn fuel and steel. And now all of a sudden we could plant at the same time but do it no-till. So that was kind of one of our big tipping points. Um, like I said, it's been a long time ago. It was before soil health, before I'd heard of soil health, before most of us heard of soil health. Um, we had always no-tilled, but we had never done anything in, in a green environment because we never, we tried planting into weeds, 
But due to the sporadic nature of weeds and how they come up in the field, you can't plant into a field of weeds green because it's not consistent. You, don't, you lose that monoculture, whereas with cover crops, you can establish a diverse system that's essentially a monoculture. So it's kind of a, a, a weird way of thinking about it, um, but that's kind of how we got started. So I thank George a lot for that. Um, that's kind of the idea of what, how I grew up. Um, so I'm not coming from a, a, an alternative background. I'm coming from a, a truly industrial uh, commercial farming. I'm very good. I, that's, uh, my father was a, is an excellent farmer. We've done everything. We went through a whole, uh, we've been through uh, turbo tills to the maxes, Phillips harrows, K630, strip tills, all trying to dry ground out so we could get planting. We do not want to wait to plant. I know that I think as my evolution continues, I'm probably going to grow to be more patient, but I've never been a patient person. So it makes it very difficult for me to not be in the fields when other folks are in the fields. So the last couple of years, as soon as people start turning ground, we start planting, um, even if it's March. Um, so why? Why get to this system? Why did we always split it up? No-till, I love no-till and we've always done it, but the problem was it was always too wet in the spring. It, it made us plant later, which we wanted early planting. Where we live, there's, we have poor soils. They're very thin, you know, two or three inches of topsoil, low organic matter. And a lot of times we have late season droughts. So if you have a late season drought, you want some of that early planting. You want some of that 103-day corn planted early to beat that high heat stress in August. But when we were straight no-till, we couldn't do that. Um, wet springs were a mess. Um, one of the other things is, is the inconsistencies in the soil. Um, with us, where we plant wheat and we have high production wheat, we don't bale the straw. A lot of times we get areas of the, the, where the combines didn't spread well. Um, you know, things weren't set right, whatever. Um, but we would get areas and pockets that were covered with debris and in areas that were bare. We still get that today, corn stalks, soybean stubble. Well, the problem is where that ground is covered it's wetter and, dark and damper. And I think that's a lot of the yield drag that we see or can experience in no-till if it's slightly wet. You have such a drastic difference in areas that are very small. So you've set up all these mini microclimates underneath of the soil, even though it looks consistent on top. What we see by planting green is that we're getting greater water efficiency, longer planting windows. We're doing a lot less replant than we were, less change in soil temperature, erosion control, weed control and higher yield, so it sounds great. Um, it, but it, it's become very year-round. Um, one problem we've had is in the cover crops, it's not getting consistent stands. So we've taken it to be a true crop now. Um, one of my father's biggest complaints early on was that we were planting green. Now his biggest complaint is that the cover crops aren't consistent enough. Um, so it's kind of come full circle. And he's always our truth tester because my father was against a lot of this, right? He was an old school farmer. Um, so getting him convinced of it always made it a bigger challenge, but I think that challenge was good because it, it tested us as a group. You know, my whole team had to come together to make sure that we all agreed on it. You know, it was kind of a group effort of farming, so everybody's on the same page moving forward, and I think that was an integral part in our transition, was making sure that my father was on board, that, the, that George was on board, that the other folks on our team were on board. Um, so I'll get into some of the, some of the stuff with planting green, we, we believe, and these were all hypotheses. So as we move forward, we've started to bring in researchers to see if what we think is true. So why plant green? In the Chesapeake Bay watershed, uh, this is a big deal to us. Um, where we are, farming has become a lot more of a social endeavor because we have river keepers on every river. We have the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. There's people really watching what we do. This year, for example, we had our normal rainfall is about 40 inches in Maryland. This year we had 72. 
Um, the folks in Pennsylvania, I think it was a little more extreme, but we had really, really extreme weather this year. I mean, 72 inches of rain, but in the middle of it in June, we had a 30-day drought, which made it really exciting. So we had flooded out spots and drought in our cornfield in the same field in the same pass. Um, so I think that the, the planting green and the no-till really paid off, but I think part of our transition has also been coming up with a philosophy of why we're going to do it. You know, why are we planting green? Why are we doing all this? So it's financial, environmental, and social, but it all kind of comes together into building this year-round ecosystem, having healthy, efficient nutrient cycling, living roots all year long. Um, another thing we learned by what we were doing before when we were planting cover crops and killing them early March is that we would build all this soil health and then we would, we would have you know, really fast overlap of the, the crop being harvested to the crop being planted for the cover crop for the winter. But then we'd kill it off in March and we'd go two months and I'd go out there and I'd dig and I'd go, there's no earthworm channels. Soil's not alive, what's going on? It had only been dead, you know, I'd only killed it off six weeks before. But it was crazy to us uh, once we started digging around to figure out that it really doesn't take much time for a lot of the progress to go backwards even in that no-till environment. Um, so what we're trying to do now is keep roots growing 365 days a year. We don't achieve that all the time. Um, we didn't get all our cover crop in this year. Our fall was miserable. Um, just to put it bluntly, it was just you know wet every day. It rained every day. We were cutting beans in the rain, picking corn in the rain. Um, wanted to get all my cover crop planted. We were about 95%, but some of it just didn't get done. One thing we did a few years ago, one of the big concerns we have in the cover crops is triazine resist or glyphosate resistant root weeds. I think everybody here probably has them, whether it's mare's tail or pigweed. Uh, we're fortunate enough to have both. Um, one of the things, problems we're having in corn, it's no problem, right? We still have atrazine, we still have dual. Um, we use a lot of, or we run Lexar and that kind of takes care of all that stuff. Beans is a whole nother ball game. Once those things get above about eight inches tall, you can't kill them. Um, glyphosinate, dicamba, whatever we use, you know, if they're four to six inches, they're great. You know, it's easy, two, four deal, knock them out. Um, so this was a field that we had um, that had a lot of mare's tail come up in it uh, three years ago. And it was a mix of barley, clover, and at the time, mare's tail. Uh, so we decided to go out and do our early burn down, but we took out the glyphosate. Um, so we just ran two, four D. Uh, so this is barley headed out, but it's only about six weeks, six, it's probably about 12 inches tall. But it headed out, it delayed the maturity of that barley, which let us get a better planting window before the barley went to seed. Because one of the hard lessons we learned is that if barley goes to seed and you plant your beans in it and you harvest the beans, you harvest beans and barley, um, which is not a good combination. So what this allowed us to do was buy that extra window, even though we were using a barley cover crop, we were able to kill the mare's tail, still plant green, keep the soil alive, but do it through the 2,4-D. So it was something we hadn't really thought of. It was probably more a mistake than anything which is how we learn most of our stuff. But what it did was it allowed us to uh, plant those beans, keep it green. Then it was just a really inexpensive shot of glyphosate to come back and clean up the barley. So now I'm gonna get into kind of some of the things that make us, I will say, unique um, that have been a very interesting uh, transition in my life. Uh, we never, I never viewed myself as an environmentalist. I never really wanted to be one. You know, I went to Purdue, wanted to come home, I wanted to farm. I wanted to farm since I was five years old like steel, like big equipment, love running equipment. Um, but my father uh, decided, we had 25 years ago, we had a fisteria outbreak in the Chesapeake Bay. And what that did was it killed a lot of fish and they blamed the farmers, kind of the, that's the short story. Um, so farmers started to get a lot of flack for having killed the fish in the bay due to pollution. 
uh, the environmental community was attacking farmers and things weren't working out very well. You know, it was, it was getting really contentious. Uh, so my father and a couple other farmers decided to invite the board of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation to our farm and another farmer in the community to tell them what we were doing and how we were doing it. Um, and I think it was an eye-opener for both. It was one of those things where we kind of learned, you know, we kind of brought the, what do they call it, the fox into the den or whatever. But uh, we ended up actually working together. And they said, what, what can we do to help you? And we were like, oh, well, we, we don't need any help. We're doing well. And then it was kind of had a nice conversation going in and realized, maybe we can improve what we're doing farming-wise. Uh, so they suggested cover crops. They did a lot of research. And he said, well, will you do cover crops? And we're like, well, only if, we get, if you'll pay for it. Um, we don't think it pays. We're not going to pay for it. This is 20 years ago before all this research had been done. And uh, so we went to the state assembly, myself included, uh, and testified to get money for cover crop funding to save the bay. So that was kind of our first real tipping point of where we started to work together. And it, it was a really easy way to get funding because you had the extreme environmentalists and industrial agriculture coming together, both asking for the same money. Um, so that was really a nice start to our uh, working and collaborating with the environmental community, which now, at least in my particular part of the state, is a really nice collaboration. Now we're doing research together, uh, we're working together. I'm on the advisory council to the president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. I'm on the board of Shore Rivers, which is our local river keeper, which does all four river watersheds that I farm on. Uh, there's one other farmer on that board. Um, so it's been quite unusual, and most folks would say, I don't think that's replicated too many places, but it really can work. Um, and we've actually learned, I've learned a lot from it because it's really nice having folks come out to the farm that don't know what I've done. They don't have all the preconceived notions of farming to help me decide to make decisions that sometimes have been good, um, particularly as it pertains to cover crop. So we've been working with Ray Weil. I met him through the, the Buffett Foundation and now he is uh, working with me. Um, he's a University of Maryland soil scientist, one of the top uh, cover croppers researchers in the country, really a brilliant guy. And he's working with me through Shore Rivers. So Shore Rivers, our local environmental organization, has gotten funding and grant funding for him to come out and research uh, different timing and planting application windows for cover crops that we're both learning from. So I've opened my farm up. So all the test plots that you see, I said, sure, come on out. You can, you're, you're welcome to do research, which is, it, it took, it's taken a lot of discomfort to get to this point where I'm actually letting environmental research be done, but I'm like, we need to know the truth, right? If I'm polluting, then I should know it. Let's figure it out. Let's work together. Let's get it straight. And if I'm not, then great. You know, that's even better for me. We'll come back to Trey in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. Now, let's get back to Trey Hill's talk. So one thing he did on the farm originally was we did uh, five strips of cover crop, four cover crop, one no cover crop, that's the NC. Uh, we replicated it three times at my home farm, and they came in in the winter and did, uh, they took pipettes from three feet in the ground and pulled up nitrate samples. And you can see that the NC um, replicated was four times higher in nitrate. 
So the environmental community was like, wow, this is really great. You know, we can pull up all these nitrates with the cover crops, and I'm going, great, we're pulling up all this money I spent on nitrogen that's now gonna go back into my crop. So it's kind of been a nice, nice reciprocal relationship, a nice collaboration uh, that we've been able to have um, to kind of lead things down the road and hopefully figure out, now we're starting to fine tune the nitrogen cycling, which has been my biggest concern in corn. Uh, that's where I've lost the most yield and had the most issues. Um, another person that's come along is, is Steve Mursky. He's doing deep core samples for research. Uh, they're going down and taking core samples four feet deep and studying it. Well, he's a carbon scientist. So now I'm thinking, well, he, he's going to me and he's going, hey, Trey, you're sequestering carbon. And I was like, well, that's great. That helps with climate change. People want to do carbon offsets. So now I'm dealing with a company, uh, Nori, that wants to do carbon sequestration and pay me to farm the way I farm, hopefully. Um, so I'm hoping this opens up some new markets. And as we start to bring in these outsiders to the farm, what that's allowing us to do is open up new markets that I think I wouldn't have never thought of as a farmer. Um, if it wasn't for Dr. Mursky, I never would have even thought of this carbon thing. Like, it was all new to me. You know, we talk about soil carbon and building organic matter, but who would ever thought that that might, within the next five years, become a marketable equity position for me? And $9 beans, that means a lot. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty nervous going into next year given current commodity prices as to how I'm going to make a living. So every little bit I can do, um, if I can get paid to sequester carbon uh, by companies outside of agriculture, to me that's a win-win. Um, so a lot of this is, has kind of come around. I'm working with Soil Health Partnership, that's National Corn Growers. Um, that's just a great partnership that we have. Uh, we're doing some really good research, but just really trying to learn what soil health is. I still don't have it quite figured, or I don't, I'm not near figuring it out, it's not, not quite. Um, and then this is another neat one. This is a lady that we're working with. Uh, she's from New Zealand. Uh, so Chesapeake Bay Foundation got grant funding for her to come do research at our farm, or in the state of Maryland. And she's more of a, um, a cattle grazer and into soil health that way. Uh, but she came to the farm, looked at my soils, and I could tell she pulled up. And I don't think she was really impressed with the big grain tanks and big steel machinery, right? She's not working with the large-scale growers. And I said, look, you know, you need to be open with me. You know, let's figure this out. We went on an earthworm dig. We did earthworm counts. She was like, wow, you're, you've got more earthworms than I thought you would. So it was kind of a compliment, I think. But just a brilliant, brilliant woman. But I think that I can learn a lot from her um, by having her out on my farm. It all sounds great, right? But it's, it's been quite challenging. Um, the first thing we learned was that if it's over 12 inches tall, you have to crimp it. Um, and corn, beans, I don't crimp at all. Uh, beans, I think the taller the cover crop, the more shading you give them early the higher the yield impact is in the positive way. Corn, the absolute opposite. And it makes sense if you look at the, 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 how, the, how they're growing. Um, so we built the crimper. Um, I don't like the regular crimpers because I wanted something that would move with the rows, but I'll cover that in a minute. Um, the other things we've run into are cereals going into head and going to seed. Uh, that's been a mess, trying to time it out. So now we actually time out the planting of our cover crops and the cereals that we used that we use based on our next year's planting dates. So we'll start with barley, go to rye, go to wheat. We do that because we like to plant in barley. Um, barley's the easiest. Then we'll go to rye, but if rye gets too tall, it gets, becomes cumbersome, it's too hard to plant into. So then for our late corn, late beans, we'll go to wheat, and that kind of balances it out. So it becomes this year-round focus of how we're doing our cover crops. Uh, we haven't gotten into the super elaborate mixes now. We're starting to do three and four-way mixes on everything. Um, we do a lot of rape seed. I put a pound of rape in everything, and that's to help with the pollinators. Um, and dealing with a lot of the environmental folks, there's a lot of 
uh, negative connotation with farmers killing bees. And I said, well, what can I do to not kill bees? You know, is it the neonics? Is it not? It's not for me to, to decide. I said, sound science says that what I'm doing is responsible. Um, but I'll switch, to, I'll switch to polymer from talc. You know, that'll help. That way, if it is blowing out of the fans, then I'm good. And I said, why not? I'll go ahead and just put a pound or two of rape in every acre that I plant of cover crop. And that way, we have early flowers. So I have flowers in every field that's not planted all the time that the bees come to. Now, I can't spray a pyrethroid over the top, so we've had to go in furrow with that and use different insecticides on the seed. Um, but I think that that really has given me a lot better public perception. As a large grower, we have a lot of targets. Um, as any grower, we have targets. Anybody that uses chemicals, they see our sprayers out there. All of a sudden, I have a field of weeds, and someone comes to me and says, oh, what do you think about the bees? And I go, I don't, I don't know. But I'm, I'm, I'm putting in habitat, right? And it doesn't cost me much. You know, I mean, rapeseed doesn't cost much. We're, we're already planting the cover crops anyway. It's adding diversity to my soil, so it's really sound agronomically in terms of getting more diversity in our cover crops. Um, then we're mixing legumes into everything um, as well. Glyphosate-resistant weeds getting too big to kill, always a problem, um, not exactly sure. And then my mortal enemy, uh, the thing that is the worst of anything is the slugs. So slugs are probably the worst thing that we have. If anyone has solutions for slugs, please share with me. Um, we have created a great slug habitat. Uh, we use a lot of slug bait. Um, we found that suspension fertilizers help. Uh, if we can put sus suspended potash out before, well, it's not gonna rain for a while. Um, but other than that, I haven't been doing some research on folks that are pulling their insecticides off their seed treatments and pulling insecticides off the fields and saying that they're getting more complimentary uh, insects around. Um, we're going to try a little bit of that this year, but I'm still very apprehensive to get away from my seed treatments. Um, I really like them, but these little things have been uh, just absolutely horrible. We have them in every field now, and they're just a really uh, a big mess for us. So I was going to get into a little bit of the equipment that we use. Um, we're very poor in our planter management. We have three different colors of planters, which does not make any sense, I agree. Um, the reason being, George likes blue planters. I do not, but George runs the blue planter, so we have a blue planter. But what we're doing is we're using row cleaners uh, with clean sweeps. Uh, we're using the Martin fertilizer disc opener. Uh, this planter actually has two of them. We, we went with the dual placement this year. And then a single spike and a cast closing wheel. One thing we've learned is that Nitrogen is a big deal in corn, particularly as it pertains to cover crops, because we've gone from planting into fields that have nitrogen available to fields that have no nitrogen available. Uh, so it's really a drastic difference. Um, with our starters, we used to put down about eight pounds of nitrogen. Uh, we did that for years. We used a boot to put it in furrow, and that really was not enough. So now we're putting between, as we start planting into the short cover crops, we'll put 10 or 15 pounds down. But as we get into the real tall stuff, we're getting into ground that's completely devoid of nutrients. It's all coming back, um, and it's coming back fairly fast, but we're finding that we need a lot more nitrogen to get that corn to pop up out of the ground and stay green. Uh, so that's why we moved to discs. Uh, when we went to the dual discs, uh, we had to lift them up a little bit because we were taking a little more downforce. Uh, we've got delta force on this planter, and it was definitely showing up. Um, we've got the smart firmers, uh, so we're starting to try to figure out the whole compaction scenario. I think one of our yield limiting factors, even in the presence of cover crops, is still compaction. Um, you get compacted ground, it thwarts the roots of the cover crop, and then your crop, so you just end up in the same cycle. You're still not getting the same root growth in the compacted areas that you're getting that you would like to. So one thing we've done is started to put radishes and higher rates of rape on our headlands. 
and then plant the field and the cereals and the clover. Um, what that's doing is it's giving us a little more diversity on the headlands, but keeping us from having to come in and plow where our trucks run and our wagons run. Because we plow it, then the next year we recompact it, we rerut it, and it just becomes a vicious cycle. Um, so we're hoping that by putting the radishes and the, 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 the bigger tap roots and the bigger root systems on the headlands, uh, what that's going to do is break up a lot of that. Lee runs their deer planter, and this is corn as well. Similar setup on the front, different closing wheels. Um, I've tried every closing wheel, I think, known to man. And um, they all have pluses and minuses, but closing the trench in really green, heavy root growth is difficult. Um, I, this is probably my favorite right now. It's a dual paddle uh, that's cast. It's very heavy, which is counterintuitive because we're going back to, we went to really light stuff that was fluffy to now going back to a cast piece. So next year it'll probably be something different. Um, because these are heavy and they do require a little down pressure, but they do stitch the ground. So it leaves some aeration, but we're getting good seed to soil contact down in the trench. And that's allowing that seed to make good contacts. So we're getting nice even emergence. Uh, double spikes, we were having some issues there under certain environments and we were having trouble sewing that, those root systems back together after we had cut them. I think that the fertilizer disc actually helps because it's chewing up an extra track in those roots to allow those closing wheels a little more room to, to move that soil back. Our case planter, um, we use this strictly for soybeans. We have a 20-inch planter and a 15. Uh, these are new uh, row cleaners that came out last year. I really like them. Um, they have a uh, parallel linkage on them. It's the first one I've seen with parallel linkage. And I remember back you know, 20 years ago when Great Plains first came out with the first drill that had parallel linkage, and everybody thought that was the greatest thing ever, right? It was a drill that would run level. Um, it's been a long time ago, but it was very innovative at the time. So I think what these are doing is they're going to run more even, but they're also going to give me less shock on my, on my units. You know, anything that's running in parallel is floating on the ground as opposed to something that's on a hinge is hitting and bouncing. Um, so I think that these are going to be quite helpful. Um, we ran them all last year. Uh, they did some updates to them. Uh, we're using an interlocking um, sharp tooth on it. And what that's doing is we use that on the beans. The, the corn we use the spikes because we don't have much trouble because we have wheat stubble. Uh, bean stubble, typically we do a little corn after corn, but the spikes can get a little cumbersome in corn after corn. These really eat those corn stalks up, um, so we like them for that. They're a little less aggressive when it comes to actually moving things, but with the beans it seems to work well. We plant our beans pretty shallow. Um, so to get into some yields, a lot of people think that if you're planting green and you're doing no-till and stuff, you don't need to shoot for high yields. Um, my philosophy is that if we're getting the soil healthier, if we're aerating it better, we're getting better water holding capacity, I should be able to beat anybody, right? Um, and do it financially sound, but I wanna be at the top of my game. So this field we planted, um, it was raining that day. Um, it's a 50 acre field, a uh, real Nimra house, it's cut up, it's got a, a duck pond in the middle of it, it's got sunflowers for dove hunting and stuff. And it was raining this day, and Lee went over to plant, and he said, well, he said, do you want me to try to plant? It was a, I think it was a Saturday morning, we were all ready to go home. I said, why don't we just go ahead and knock it out? And um, normally we wouldn't plant in the rain, right? You know, your gauge wheels, everything gets sticky, your, everything just, it's just a mess. And uh, he started planting, and because everything was green, it was a light drizzle, nothing stuck, it planted beautifully. So we just kept on planting. I mean, there were flowers all stuck to the planter. The, the front grill got stopped up with, with rapeseed flowers. Planted the whole field in the rain that day. Um, didn't tear anything up. Planted beautifully. And I was like, huh, that's kind of nice. It's actually, you know, not only we're planting earlier, but we can plant all day. Um, worked out great. And then here's the yield map. You're looking at 250 bushel corn um, planted into that mess, um, which proves to me that I'm not hitting it every time, but that it's possible. 
You know, that gives me that observation of what did we do in that field? It isn't because we planted it in the rain, but I'm just indicating that you can plant into different messes and you have to, what we've done is look at things a lot differently than we used to. Um, I, I think it kind of has been a game changer for us in trying to figure all this out. Uh, this is a bean field uh, that we planted. Obviously, it's got an irrigation on it. We had to spray this off. It had a lot of ryegrass coming in it, I think bluegrass, that was getting ready to go to seed. It goes to seed really early, and we didn't want that, so we killed it off. Our cover crop hadn't, hadn't blocked it out. So the part to the left, the cover crop had blocked out, didn't have the same grass issue, but when you grow a lot of wheat, um, you have to be very aware that you don't want to get your fields infected with a lot of grass seed. So we killed it off, planted it at the same time, and uh, didn't really think anything of it. Um, planted it, went on, sprayed it, and we're quite happy. Um, but what happened was we started to cut, and it's a little messy. We had multiple machines running. Um, now, it yielded in, I think it was about 75 bushel. Awesome beans by, by our standards. Um, I was like, wow, that's great. But then we got over here. We were planting green, and they were running in the 80s. And we've replicated this numerous, numerous times. The ryegrass was, or the cereal rye, I'm sorry, was this tall when we planted those beans, these up here. I mean, just to... What I still am uncomfortable planting into, even though we've been doing this for, for several years, I'm still very uncomfortable. I mean, you can't see the rows for 40 days, but 10 bushel difference, um, and really didn't do much to it. A little bit of potash, no starter, uh, seeds, seed treatment, and, um, and that doesn't always go that way. And then we had a field, the corn plot we did, the irrigated field. That's the, the brown spot there that we sprayed. It was average yields, um, nothing exceptional, but I was looking to see the nitrogen management was all the same across the field, through the brown area, the green area, everything. And what it ended up being was that we didn't see any difference, which to me was a net positive because I was anticipating seeing a lack of nitrogen there. Um, so we're learning. I had a field this year, and, uh, but we had one field that we planted in April, and it was a real mess. Um, we planted it early April and then proceeded to get 10 or 15 inches of rain on it. So the beans just sat there and sat there and sat there. I mean, underwater. I mean, I'm sure everybody's had springs like that. I don't, the Pennsylvania guys can feel my pain. But the, just imagine the wettest, darkest spring you've ever had. And we had this 300-acre field uh, sitting there, just fermenting, essentially. So we scouted it and scouted it. And I had half the people that scouted it recommended replanting. Half said that we should look at it and replant it in a week. Um, everyone thought it was ugly. It's actually the same field that George and I did the test plot on 14 years ago, right next to the co-op, right next to the grain place, right where every farmer drives. So about a week prior to harvest, I sat down with my father and our most experienced uh, fertilizer salesman, a gentleman that's been selling to us since I was a kid, 30 years. So these two gentlemen combined have more farming, as much farming experience as anyone you know and myself. And we all sat there and said, yeah, this was a defeat. Should have never planted them. Field looks awful, looked awful all year. The fertilizer salesman, Jim Smith, has been driving by it every day. He's telling me that the, the Willards, the owner of his company, also commented that, that I might have lost it, you know, that, that you know, at some point tradies to reevaluate what he's doing because it's just not working. Um, fields look hard when we're going into harvest. And I'm like, yeah, well, we wanted to put wheat in, couldn't replant it. It was wet spring. We'll chalk that up to the learning process. Yielded 85 bushels which all three of us would have, would have, no one would have taken the bet that they were going to be over 60. No one would have. I mean, it looked awful. So what we're doing is still trying to learn, but a lot of the things that appear one way in this environment end up another. And then in closing, I like the quote, many small people who are many small places doing many small things uh, that can alter the face of the world. And I think that as farmers, um, or as a farmer, 
um, we're really fortunate that we have that ability um, to really make a difference. Um, so I, I, I relish that, and I think that in dealing with a lot of the environmental folks and different folks, they're all very jealous uh, that we have this gift to be able to really alter things and really change things and make things better. Um, so that's all I have. Thank you. Thanks so much to Trey Hill for sharing his perspective on the complexities of ecological farming and planting green. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.